0: So everybody have a good break? Yeah, everybody? All right. My morning people, you, you're still with me? Yeah, my lunch people, you, you're all right? We're getting close to lunch, and I'm going to get out of your way. All right. <laughs> Excellent. Well, we wanted to pick up the, a second question in our in our conversation um, for this morning, uh, which is related to the first. Uh, and it's the question, who leads the church? Who leads the church? Um, and what I want to do in answering this question is is take up that first question, first of all, who leads the church? I want to answer that in two ways. And then I want to take up a second question, um, which has to do with sort of a vision for the men who lead the church, um, both in terms of what they're like in character um, and spend a few few moments thinking about how such men are made, right? Uh, How such men are made. And so those are the sort of three things we want to, Hang our thoughts on uh, this morning when it comes to this question, who leads the church? And we'll be bouncing around the scriptures, so feel free uh, to just sort of note, if you will, some of the references or turn there with me if you like. But we're going we're gonna to survey the scripture a little bit. The first question, who leads the church? Really, two answers to that. First, Jesus Christ leads the church. Jesus Christ is the sole and sovereign head of the church. Right? It is his church. It is his body. He is the leader of the church. Uh, we see this in a number of ways. Matthew chapter 16 verses 13 to 18. There Jesus promises in, in response to Peter's confession that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. He promises there that upon this rock, Peter in that profession, that he would build his church. So it is Christ who, who builds the church. It is Christ who owns the church. It is Christ who has purchased the church with his own blood. So he, he holds the title deed. And we see that expressed in a number of places in the scripture where we are told something about the, about the headship of Christ and the supremacy of Christ over the church and all things. Let me just read a, a few of these sublime passages. Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. And he put all things under his feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Christ is head, the church is his body. Marvelously we're being told that the church is the, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Or later in Ephesians, which we've already mentioned, Ephesians 5 verse 23 the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church his body of which he is the savior Colossians chapter 1 verses 17 and 18 he is before all things and in him all things hold together and he is the head of the body the church he is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy Or in Colossians 2, verses 9 and 10. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. So when we come to this question, we we really need to begin with this this lofty vision of who Jesus is. In him, the fullness of the, the Godhead dwells bodily. And he he reigns over all things as the supreme ruler over all things. And his body is 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 attached to him as body to head, and he he reigns over the church as well, and he he fills the church as well. And in him the church finds its fullness. So this is this is to whom the church answers. This is who leads the church. And in these images we, we get both in these statements we get both a picture of the, of the lofty transcendence of God of the, of, the, of, the, of the sheer otherness and greatness of Christ but also the intimacy, the closeness, the nearness of Christ. He is as lofty as can be described as the supreme ruler of all things but he is as near to us and as attached to us as our bodies are attached to our heads. And he is ruler as head. Now, I, don't, I, I want us to avoid a few mistakes here really quickly, uh, because I think we live in a church culture that's confused not only about manhood, but confused also about the place and the role of the local church. Right? Uh, and there's some mistakes that we can make when we hear that Christ is head overall and Christ is head of the church. So uh, I just want to tick these off real quickly and give some quick responses to them. Number one, we can, we can think that because Jesus is head of the church, we don't need to submit to human leadership. That's a popular notion, particularly among some younger Christians. Because Jesus is the head of the church, I don't really need human leadership. It's just sort of me and my personal relationship with Christ. And if Christ is head, why do I... Why do I need human leaders? Well, because Christ, who is head, appoints human leaders in his church. He establishes authority, and that authority combined with love is good for us. And we'll talk about 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, uh, but here, Hebrews 13, 17, very clearly, obey your leaders and submit to their authority. So obviously the head of the church intends us to be led by appointed leaders in every congregation. Second thing we may think that would be false is that because Jesus is head of the church, I don't really need another example to follow. You know, Christ is the head, Christ is perfect, I'm looking to Christ and so I don't, I don't need sort of other examples. But that too is, is contradicted by the scriptures. The Apostle Paul, inspired by, by the Holy Spirit, penned these words about, about headship that we have just read, but he's also who writes of himself in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, follow my example as I follow Christ. And you will see as you read Paul's letters that that by and large his his pastoral ministry consists of of, of teaching yes by word, but also by example. He's always modeling for for Christ's people, how to live. So, so he writes to a young pastor, perhaps a little, a little down on himself because he's young, and some people who are, who are treating him like he's young. He writes to young Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, and he says, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young, but set an example in every area of life, really. Set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. We learn to become men in the church in large part by following examples of godly manhood in the church. A third, a third myth I want to dispel real quickly. Because Jesus is head of the church, I don't need to join a local church. Christ is the head, I'm part of the body, we're sort of spiritually and mystically united together. Really, what many people are saying when they say that is, I don't need accountability or community. I, I don't. I don't want people sort of in my life. It's the spirit of a lone ranger. You know, we need more Tontos. <laughs> you know, don't mind calling someone Kemosabean and serving together. Um, you know, many Christians would say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just sort of, I'm not a joiner or institutional church. You know, it's just. Eh. Do something new, something organic, something loose. And, and I'm afraid for that way of thinking. I'm afraid for that way of thinking because really the only plan God has for our spiritual maturity as Christians and as men is the local church. It's, it's plan A. And there's no plan B. And, and so those folks who, who disconnect themselves from the church are, I, I love the way uh, Kevin Young and Ted Kluck put it, you've heard of people who are decapitated, their bodies without a head. Well, these folks are decorpulated. <laughs> Their heads without a body. They're just sort of floating around in space, you know. I don't need the body. I'm just it's just me and Jesus. Well, actually that's just not the biblical picture of Christian discipleship and, and how Christian how Christian manhood is formed. So a fourth thing, because Jesus is the head of the church, I don't need to work hard at leading. Christ is the leader, let him lead. Well here's a word of reminder for us, undershepherds and aspiring under-shepherds and aspiring elders. while Christ is the great head and soul and sovereign head of the church, he makes no room for either a lazy or lackadaisical approach to pastoral ministry and to leadership. He speaks plainly to us, Romans 12:6 and eight, "Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them the one who leads with zeal. We're called to lead with diligence, with zeal, not to be passive and not to abdicate, as we said earlier. Because Jesus is the head of the church, I don't need to worry about the welfare of the church. Christ will take care of it all. Christ certainly is the great shepherd, and and the work ultimately depends upon his grace. But, But Paul could write, and apart from other things, a litany of hardships that he had suffered in the cause of Christ, he says, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I'm not weak? Who's made to fall and I'm not wrong? That crisis the head of the church is no prescription for, for worry-free labor in the ministry or, or worry-free avoidance of, of the church and caring for others in the church. Those who suffer, we suffer with him. Those who rejoice, we rejoice with him. We we labor and strive so that Christ's afflictions are, are filled up in us. A final thing here in terms of myths we want to dispel: because Jesus is the head of the church, I should have an easy time being a fruitful leader in the church, right? I, I'm in God's will. I'm I'm leading as He's called. I'm serving His church. Well, surely then I, I, my life should be full of fruit and ease and visible measures of success. That's not, what, that's not what we're told in the scripture. What we're told in the scripture is that the measure of faithful ministry, and I, and I would dare say the measure of faithful manhood, or of manhood, is faithfulness. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 verses 1 and 2, it's required of stewards that they be found faithful. And that's what we are as men. We're stewards and we're leaders. And what's required of us is to be faithful. Even if faithfulness looks like persevering in, in trial after trial after trial. Affliction after affliction after affliction. So, so Peter can stand up in Acts, in Acts 2, and preach the gospel, and thousands come, come to a saving knowledge of Christ. Stephen can stand up and preach the same gospel, And be stoned to death. Paul could sometimes go from shipwreck to beating to being run out of town. But he's faithful. And the reward he gets in heaven is for being faithful. The results belong to God. Last thing I want to say uh, about Jesus' rule in his church is that Jesus rules his church by his word, he's the sole head of the church, and he's ruling in the church. And, and because, he's church, because he's the head of the church, we, we're not at liberty to make excuses for abandoning leadership in the church, but, but rather we're to see that he leads and rules his church by his word. Sometimes his word comes to us as a, as a command. We, we think of Jesus' words in Luke chapter 6, verse 46, where he says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? That to call him Lord is to be lovingly obedient to him. Submit to him and to honor his word and to be governed by his word. He, he, he governs us by his word or rules his church by his word by, by setting limits through that word. Not only commanding us to do certain things positively, but defining some things as out of bounds. And so we can read again in Paul's letter in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, where Paul says, Now, brothers, I have applied some things to myself and Apollos, as he's instructing the Corinthians, says, so I do that for your benefit, so that you may learn not to go beyond what is written. There Christ is exercising his rule in the church by setting limits to the church. And even in that little phrase, you may learn not to go beyond what is written, I think implicit is the idea that Christ's word is sufficient. Not only is it authoritative, not only does it rule by his word, but it's sufficient. What he tells us in his word is enough for us as men who desire to be biblical, mature men and to lead in this church. And lastly, with regard to his word and his rule of his word, his word not only commands us and instructs us and not only limits us, but does not his word test us? Does not his word sift us? Does not his word place us in the furnace for, for purifying? And by his word, we're, we're to test all things. So we we remember the example of the Bereans in, in Acts chapter 17, that, that church who was commended for hearing the apostle Paul's preaching and saying, wait a minute, let me see if this is in the scriptures. Can you imagine? A great apostle shows up to preach at Redeemer and all the people go, wait a minute, Paul, show me Show me that. <laughs> And yet that's precisely how it's supposed to be. And when the book is open, the people's eyes and hearts and ears are open too to see whether that's in the word, see whether those things are are true. Every church should follow the Berean example, and, and men in particular should be examples of this Berean example, of giving ear to the word of God, of listening as our sovereign speaks and rules in his church. So Christ, first of all, who leads the church is Jesus Christ, the, the sole head of the church. And he rules the church by his word. But now, under Christ, there are secondly qualified men who lead the church as under shepherds. I want to unpack that just a little bit. Because the, 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 the first way I want to unpack that is just to point out that it's men, not women, who lead the church. It's men, not women, who lead the church. So Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 to 15, he says there, he says, um, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. Then he says there in verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over men. She must remain silent. He says a very similar thing over in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 33 to 35, where he's outlining order in the church. And the first thing he says there is that women must be silent in the church. Now, he's not being some chauvinist. He's not being some, some imperial dictator with his thumb on the neck of women holding them down. That's, that's not what he's doing at all. And when he says a woman should be silent, he's, he's not there placing an absolute prohibition to women speaking in the church. Because just a couple chapters ear- earlier in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he notes that women are praying and prophesying in the public service. There's much we could say about that, but I just want to make the point that when he says silent, He's not talking about some absolute prohibition. What he's talking about is that in the church, as we said earlier, is the restoration of the creation order. That that in the, in the church and in our union with Christ, there is the reversal of the curse. So that that sin in the garden that distorts the relationship between men and women so that women usurp authority and men abdicate, well, in Christ, who is reversing that curse and freeing us from it, there is the increasing enjoyment of the restored order, creation. So, when he says in First Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, uh, a woman I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must remain silent. In verses 13 and 15, he gives us the grounds for that. He gives us the reasons for that. And it's interesting to note, he's not making a culturally conditioned argument. He's not making some argument based upon his own time and his own setting, as we're sometimes told. And he's not really making an argument based upon the, the sort of um, ability of men and women as such. They're women with outstanding leadership abilities. They're women with outstanding teaching (coughs) gifts that are meant to be used in the right sphere. When he says in quietness and in full submission, he's hearkening back to the creation order. So in verse 13 in 1 Timothy chapter 2, he says, for, or because, this is the reason why he's given this instruction, Adam was made first, then Eve. Paul sees in the very ordering of the creation of man and woman, the justification in part for male leadership in the church. This is how it was in the garden, as we saw in Genesis two. This is how it is to be in the in a new garden, in a new city, in the new Jerusalem of the church. Right? So that's the first reason he gives. Second reason he gives is this he says, For it was not the it was not Adam who was deceived, but it was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. And there now Paul is is dealing with this idea of of deception and he's dealing with this this idea of of what happened in the garden in terms of of Eve becoming a sinner. He's not excusing Adam for his sin. We know that because in Romans chapter 5 verse 12 he says very clearly we all fall in Adam. It's Adam's transgression that brings sin into the world. It's Adam abdicating the role of leadership that, that ruins the creation. He's talking here mainly about this this notion of deception and sort of bringing that forward. Adam's sin was willful. Eve's sin was a result of, of deceit. And when they fell in the garden in Genesis 3, fundamentally the failure was this reversal of roles. Adam should have been leading. He should have been saying, we don't eat from this tree however beautiful the fruit. He should have been guarding, in that sense, God's honor and God's rule over over man in the garden. And he should have been leading his wife and protecting his wife. So when the creation order gets reversed, the results are disastrous. They're simply disastrous. We may experience that if we abandon it in church. We'll experience that disaster if we abandon it in our homes. This, this This is really why no couple really, I think, maybe this is an overstatement, so I should say 98.7% of couples (laughs) who have their roles reversed are really all that happy. Just not. Women women suffer the the stress of doing something they weren't intended to do. And men suffer the indignity of, of feeling like they're not really regarded as men. Even if the family's working well, even if they're committed egalitarians who don't believe in in gender distinctions when it comes to, to family relationships or church relationships. You ever notice how much strife and stress exists there? As, as they abandon the prescribed roles that God has made for, for men and women. And so as we said, in the gospel those roles are reestablished. And, and in the gospel those, those, those roles then are reflected in who leads the church? Qualified men, men, not women. Second thing I want to say about these men who, who lead the church is that, that they must be qualified to lead. Uh, look with me in First Timothy chapter 3 as, as Timothy goes, or Paul goes from explaining at the end of chapter 2 that um, women are, are not permitted to, t- to lead and to teach and to usurp authority over men. that really is the issue, authority over men, over the whole church. He goes from that to explaining who it is then among men who should lead. And he gives the qualifications there in, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and I'll just read those through verse 7. He says, here's a trustworthy saying. If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. Now the overseer must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited and fall into the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. Those are the kind of men who under Christ lead the church. Max said it earlier when he was looking at this list. uh, He said really the only thing that's unique in this list is that little phrase they're able to teach. That every other thing that's in this list is, is said of Christian men, Christian women, Christian people in general. So, so the list of sort of uh, qualifications there of, of character attributes, hospitable, not, not given to wine, uh, and so forth. Well, we're just getting a description of mature Christianity, of a mature Christian, a mature Christian man. What's different is the degree to which this exists in those who are qualified to leave. Right? So this should exist in, in such a proportion that, that, that the men who hold this office of elder, this noble calling of elder, to exist in such a proportion that, that to, to look at those men and to follow those men would be to look at Christ and follow Christ. Not in some perfectionistic sense, but in some degree of outstandingness that, that really does model, put forth Christ. So the question churches should be asking themselves is when they're considering making a man an elder, is, if we put this person before the congregation, will we be happy and confident that the, anyone in the congregation following this person's life will, in fact be tracing their life over Christ? That there's that kind of Christian character and maturity in, in such a man. Now I want you to notice something in verse one, chapter three. God says. Anyone who desires this desires a noble task. They desire a good thing, a wonderful thing. And in 1 Peter chapter 5, there in verses 1 to 4, where Peter addresses the elders that he's writing to there, he he says to the elders there, shepherd the flock of God under your care. And he says to them to be eager to do this work as God wants you to. In other words, brothers, when you look at 1 Timothy 3, and you look at this notion of elders who, who govern the church, men qualified and called of God to lead his people, I want to encourage you, as Max said earlier, to think of that as a goal for yourself. To be qualified in such measure, to be mature in such measure that, that, that you may be an elder among God's people. That's just another way of envisioning biblical manhood, spiritual maturity. So so the question should be to you, if you're sitting here today and you're hearing this, you should be asking yourself, why would I not desire to be an elder? If this is a noble thing and a good thing, and if this is a a description of of Christian maturity and, and mature manhood, on what grounds would I say before God, I don't want that? God says be eager for this in 1 Peter 5 as he wants you to be. Isn't there something wrong with the heart that's not eager for that? I'm not saying there's something wrong with the heart that looks at a particular characteristic and say I don't think I'm qualified I don't think I've grown to that point yet that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying there's something wrong with the heart that says I don't want to grow to that point. There's something defective in the thinking that looks at a list that says this is what Jesus looks like and this is what God wants you to look like and we respond, but I don't want to look like that. We better have very compelling grounds for saying that before the Lord. I don't think there are such grounds. So I think Mac is right when he says to us, and he says that the vision of men's ministry and Redeemer is that every man be qualified to be an elder. Not every man will be qualified to be an elder. Or, or called to be an elder, I should say. But every man should desire to be qualified to be an elder. To be, to be matured in this way. To be strong in this way. This is a this is Partly the vision of, of Christian manhood. So, let's talk about that a bit further. This vision. Let's look at another passage of scripture where we get, a, we get a vision of what it looks like to be a seasoned man in God's church. And we also get instruction for how God's church is to, is to create such a man. let's look over at Titus chapter 2, verse 2. And there we read this. Paul beginning to address the various segments of people in the congregation there in Crete that Titus is pastoring and instructing Titus on how to care for various persons in the congregation. He says in chapter 2 verse 2, teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-control, and sound in faith and love and endurance. Now, the world's idea of a man's man is someone who chops down trees, knocks out opponents, shoots Bambi, and, and just borders on reckless, uncontrolled aggression, right? We see it in movies like Iron Man. I was so disappointed. Have you seen Iron Man and Iron Man 2? I was so disappointed. That was one of my favorite comic books growing up as a little boy. You know and, they, and they, take, they take the Iron Man character, they make him a metrosexual, you know. <laughs> you know he's all into clothes and watches and cars and all that good stuff and and in the first, the first movie you're, you're looking at him, you're thinking, okay, there, there's going to be a, a transformation here. He's this rotten, womanizing character who, who's going to discover his faults and, and, and the gospel according to the world, just make himself a better man, right and he's going to end the movie a good guy and sort of almost at the end of chapter 1 or, or, or movie 1 you're sort of hopeful for that so I go to see Iron Man 2 expecting you know he's going to be a new guy he's the same old rotten scoundrel <laughs> that he was in the first movie I think that's because in part that's a worldly idea of manhood undergirding that film and the gospel of manhood according to the world is be a predator be be, be a victor crush your enemy, and collect women. And here's what we see as mature manhood in, in Titus chapter 2, verse 2. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-control, sound in faith, and love and endurance. Six things there that we can organize into two groups. First group of three might be labeled self-mastery. Teach the older men to exercise self-mastery. The second group of three, uh, we might label spiritually healthy. Teach them to be spiritually healthy. When we grow to be old men, I was going to say old gray-haired men, but some of us are gray and not yet old. All right. When we grow to be old men, when we picture where we're going, then what we ought to picture is someone who has, who has mastered self and who is spiritually sound. His mastered self and spiritually sound. That self-mastery, as we said, consists of those first three things. A, a true man is a temperate man. Secondly, a true man is, is worthy of respect. By temperate, we mean he's not, he's not drunk. He's not given away to, to passions of various sorts. Not just, not just alcohol, but, but other kinds of lust and other kinds of passions. You may, you may have a translation that says he's sober. He keeps his head keeps his wits about him. He's not at the bars, he's not looking at every woman that passes by. He's not tossed around by his anger or other destructive feelings. A godly man is a temperate or sober man. And not only that, he's a he's a man worthy of respect. He's dignified. He's grave or or serious. He's he's venerable. There's a there's a weightiness about him. There's a there's a gravitas about him. He's the kind of guy that when you when you're sort of in his presence you straighten up. You you don't goof around with him, you're not you're not horseplaying. It's not that he lacks joy, it's not that. He's a man. And and, and in his and in his presence you there's something about him that, that stirs you to well to, to manhood yourself, to, to dignity and, and respect yourself. You stand straighter. You 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 elocute, <laughs> you speak respectfully. There's a dignity about him. He has that kind of worthiness of respect. There's an admiration that's just, that's just demanded by, by his character. And he's a self-controlled man. It's closely related to temperate. With temperate, Paul perhaps addresses the, the sort of inner emotions and feelings that older men are to have. But with self-control, the emphasis perhaps is on the actions that he takes. A true godly man is self-disciplined, self-restrained. He's the, he's the opposite of the prodigal. Who went out and wasted his life and his inheritance in, in riotous living? It's not reckless and wild. Doesn't give himself over to every impulse and reaction. He's discreet, sober in his actions, has a grip on himself. So, this is a godly man, royal in demeanor. And one of the saddest things I think to see in life is to see an old man, or even an old woman for that matter, Living, living a lewd, out of control, teenager-like life. You know, um, Al Mohler, I think, is the one who's coined the term "adult adolescence." You know, these are folks who are well into the age of adulthood but live like adolescents. You know, um, yeah, I'll leave that alone. He's going to start ragging on certain ways of dressing, but I'll leave that alone. <laughs> and not only is he. Does he have self mastery? He is he's spiritually healthy. Again, see there, a godly man is sound in faith. He's a man who is persuaded of the truth and remains in the truth of Christ. He has a firm belief on, on the Lord Christ and the gospel and the word of God and the, and, and the truths of the faith. He receives sound doctrine and he, he embraces it. He has conviction. It's not wishy-washy and and dodgy and uncommitted and and squishy about the truth. He walks by faith, not by sight. He practically trusts the Lord and and follows the Lord and yields himself in obedience. There's there's no spiritual health, beloved, without being sound in faith. He has a healthy faith that leads to a healthy spiritual life. And notice he's sound in love, too. True man is not hard toward others. Gentle. He's, he's, a, he's a steel blade, yes, because he's sound in faith, but he's wrapped in a velvet cloak. He's, he's a rod of iron in his back, but he's, he's got a gentle touch. This is a true man. He, he's sound in love. He embodies all the ways the Bible tells us to love. He loves the Lord with all his mind and heart and soul and strength. Matthew twenty two thirty seven. He loves his neighbors as himself. Matthew twenty-two thirty-eight. 38. He loves his wife the way Christ loves the church. Ephesians 5. He loves his children and raises them in the Lord. Ephesians 6, 4. He, he knows he has passed from death to life because he, he loves the brothers and sisters in Christ. 1 John 3, 14 and 15. He loves his enemies. Matthew 5, 44. He's sound in love. When you find a man like this you found a true man. Some people may think he's may not think he's a man's man but he he certainly is God's man. He may may not be dressed in plaid chopping down trees like a lumberjack but he is a man. He may not be carrying on great exploits on the athletic field or in the boardroom but a man who loves like this A man who's sound in the faith, in God's sight, is the best of men. He is a true man. And finally, this true man of God is sound in endurance. He's steadfast or patient. He perseveres. He he bears up under pressure. When circumstances are difficult, he presses on. He He doesn't fold. He doesn't quit. He's a man. Have you ever noticed that no one respects a man who quits? No one does. Throws in the tile on the job, throws in the tile in the family, throws in the tile on, on his children. He comes, he tells his boys, Man, I, I, I quit, man. That woman, she drives me crazy. I, the boys don't respect him. Boys don't respect him. Whether they say it or not, they look at him and we all think the same thing Be a man. <laughs> don't we? We all think the same thing. Be a man. Man up. You know, chest out, back straight. Lean into it. Lead. Okay, it's bad. Men don't quit. Your wife doesn't honor you. Love her anyway. Your children disrespect you. Correct them anyway. You're not getting accolades in the workplace. You work for the glory of God. Work for Him. Serve Him. You don't quit. You suck it up. You suck it up and you push in. You go, no, I'm God's man in this sphere. I'm God's man in this marriage. I'm God's man in this parenting gig. I'm God's man in his workplace. I'm God's man in my community. I'm God's man in my church. It's hard. So what? God didn't promise us a bed of roses. The world's fallen and twisted with sin. God's men lean in. God's men suck it up they're sound in endurance they persevere in hope this is what we want to be by the time we reach the end of our lives we want to be men like this this is what seasoned manhood looks like and this is the kind of manhood that should be leading the church so to my brother's question earlier some of the sisters don't like the fact that the scriptures teach that men should rule the church, should lead the church well we're not going to crush our sisters we're going to shepherd them to the truth. We're going to patiently listen to them. We're going to sort of try and hear the objections of their heart. Are they objecting to God's word because they're not believers? We're we going to love them in the gospel. Are they objecting to God's word because, because the examples of men they've seen are, are fallen examples, where we're going to, in patience and love, try to be a better example for them? Are they objecting to God's word because they've seen the abusive tyranny of some men who aren't really men? We're going to be tender. We're going to shepherd them. We're going to persevere in the truth. We're going to call them to enroll in God's vision for them and for us. And to experience that as a a beautiful thing. Experience that for the blessing that it's meant to be. Well, how do we prepare for leadership in the church? Just a couple of quick comments here. We're in in Titus chapter 2. Look down at verse 6. Paul writes there, similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. Now by similarly, Paul is referring back to the previous verses where he's given instructions for older women and what they teach to the younger women. So he's envisioning here older men raising up younger men to be true men. That is the task of every man in the church, to come alongside other men in the church and to be raising up an army of godly men. I can't just sort of push the pause button right here and just again make a point as clearly as I hope that hopefully I can build your life into the church and build your life around a godly gospel preaching church. There are things that war against our commitment to the church. We mentioned one in the first talk that's that's work and wealth. But now I will suggest to you that that family can war against our commitment to the church as well. How often as as a pastor have I heard people tell me, for example, they don't come to our Sunday night evening services because, well, that's family time. And and I'm sort of looking at them askance thinking, shouldn't you be building your family into the church so that family time is is inclusive of the notion of worshipping together with the people of God? And, and, and there's some dear brothers in, in my own church back home whom I, whom I love and, and, and would give an arm for who, who probably should be in leadership. I, I think they have many of the qualities for leadership and who refuse to be in leadership in the church because they argue family time. And there's one sense in which that's right. Family comes before leadership, as we said earlier. But I'm just sort of looking at their lives and thinking, no, actually what they have is a small view of leadership. Actually, what they have is a, is a small view of how important it is that godly men lead in the church and that their family be built into the church and around the church. And so I just want to encourage you, if that, if that fits any of you men here, let me just encourage you to, to juggle again the prioritizations until you get the big rocks in, until you understand that part of what it means to worship God is the biggest rock, is to actually lead your family in the worship of God, and that that also might include actually moving into leadership in your local church. You don't make those things enemies. But Paul here says, we're to train these young men to grow up to be like these old men, but he narrows it down to just one one criteria there. One thing that we are to prepare these young men in, interestingly, is self-control. Why self-control? You look back at the verses that describe women and it's like teach them to be chaste at home, to honor their husbands. We've got a whole list of things there for the young ladies to learn. But we come here to the young guys and it's just this one issue of of self-control. Why why does God boil it down to that one thing? The answer? The most basic and essential part of adulthood, of true manhood, is self-control. The most basic and essential part of adulthood, of true manhood, is self-control. By definition, someone who lacks self-control is not a man. Think about infants. When when their body tells them they're hungry, what do they do? They whine, they cry, and nobody gets any rest until the baby gets fed, right? They're controlled by their appetites. They they lack self-control. Or, or maybe your children. You remember that stage, if you have children, where they they grow up sort of to to middle childhood, you know, sort of just preteen kind of thing, and they start wanting to do things like stay up all night. They don't want to have a bedtime. I want to stay up all night. And and what happens if you give them that opportunity? They don't go to bed at a respectable hour. They try to stay up till one in the morning just so they can say they stood. And then when you try to wake them for school the next morning, oh, Dad, I was up too late. I can't make it. You know, they like self-control teenagers. I don't know what the driving age here is in Dubai, but they get their driver's license and get in the car. What's the first thing they want to do? They want to step on the gas, don't they? They wanna go fast. You know, they pull up to the pull up to the stoplight driving a Ford fiesta. You know, they're revving the gas, you know, you know, they just have these delusions of being in a Maserati or something. We going we're gonna get on Sheikh Zayed Highway. I want to open it up, man. I'm gonna blow out the carburetor, you know. Just like my son Titus, he's four years old. I drive this little Honda Odyssey, this little four-door thing, little sort of minivan kind of thing, and we get on the uh, sort of bypass, come out of the roundabout. Titus, go, Dad, catch him, Dad, catch him. You know, we're in this little black car rocking, trying (laughs) trying, trying to get one more mile an hour out of it. But you put that young driver, pulls up to the light, pulls up beside a true man. He looks over there and he says, hey, you want to run that thing, you know? hits the gas, vroom, revs the engine. The man looks over there at him. Light turns green. The young guy, boom, barreling out, right? The true man just pulls on out, obeys the speed limit, and goes on about his business. Why? Self-control. I need to prove anything to this young, reckless guy. He's possessed himself. You know, he's mastering himself. And that's the essence of manhood. That's the difference between true manhood and, and a youthfulness pretending to be manhood, self-control. And so in our churches, we want to have the kind of culture where, where people are, are helped to acquire that. Young men in particular are being discipled in that way to, to exercise control over themselves, for that, that really is at the root of, of manhood, and that's at the root of spiritual maturity. And to see that, we, we need only trace through Titus. So look back at Titus chapter 1, verse 8. Paul's there giving qualifications for elders in the church, men who lead the church. Notice there that self-control is in the list. We mentioned Titus chapter 2 verse 2, older men must be self-controlled. Titus chapter 2 verse 3, that idea of reverence there for for women, older women. Reverence requires self-control. I come down to Titus 2:5 again. Younger women are to be trained in self-control, and now in Titus 2:6, the young men must be urged to, to self-control. Why does Paul keep coming back to this particular discipline, this particular characteristic, as he's talking about leaders in the church and all the other people in the church? I think the answer is in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14, that in a way that we don't commonly think. Self-control is at the heart of the gospel and what the gospel produces. So look there, Titus 2, beginning in verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation to all men has appeared to all men, excuse me. Listen, this grace that saves us, look look at what it does. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. You notice that? Saving grace appeared in Jesus Christ, verse 11. Saving grace not only saves men, but notice verse 12, it also teaches men. And specifically, grace teaches the one that's been saved by it To refuse ungodliness and worldly passions which at one time controlled them according to chapter 3 verse 3. But now when saving grace converts a person, that that same grace teaches that person to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the midst of darkness and evil. The reason grace teaches the saved person to live this way is because Jesus gave himself on the cross to redeem us from wickedness, to purify a people for himself. So self-control flows naturally out of the sacrifice of Christ for his people and the salvation that he brings to him. Biblical manhood in that sense then is a gospel issue. Living like a Christian man reveals the transforming power of God's grace in Jesus Christ. And the reason many people will not embrace Christ as Lord, serve him as God, follow him as master and savior of their lives because they will not accept the gospel's command to self-control and submission to God's rule. They would rather have a twisted understanding of self-control, which is really recklessness and rebellion, than to come under the lordship of Christ our master. A clear example of this is It's Felix in Acts chapter 24. Remember that passage? Paul is on his way to trial and he appears before Felix who who wants to hear him preach. Paul preaches the gospel to Felix. And in Acts 24 verse 25 we read this. As Paul discoursed notice now as Paul discoursed on righteousness self-control and the judgment to come isn't it an interesting way to describe the gospel? He discoursed on righteousness, self-control, and a judgment to come. Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. Two years pass. Paul is still in that prison. Felix is reassigned, sent off to some other place to govern. He never calls for Paul. He never finds it convenient to be inconvenienced by the gospel to hear the gospel's command that we turn into Christ as our sacrifice and our savior, as the provider of our righteousness, and we live out that righteousness in self-control. Don't be like Felix. Don't follow his example. As far as we know, Felix perished in his sins. He never became a man of faith, trusting Christ. If that's true, he suffers God's holy judgment even now, real men repent of their sins, place their trust in Jesus, and follow him in the obedience that comes from faith. They believe Jesus offered his life on a cross to pay for their sins, and, and they believe that Jesus provides for them the self-control they need to live godly lives. And so, find forgiveness today, if you haven't already. Don't fear this self-control. It is the fruit of God's grace in the lives of those who believe. And it is sweet, succulent fruit that brings blessing and satisfaction. Just a couple words of application and we'll close. Notice in verse 1 of Titus 2. Paul tells Titus that you must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. That phrase, teach sound doctrine, runs throughout Paul's letters, especially the pastoral epistles. The word teach more literally is speak or talk. This isn't so much Titus' public teaching and preaching ministry as his everyday conversation, as his house-to-house conversation. In other words, Paul here is talking about a culture where the, gossip is, where the gospel is gossiped. He's talking about a culture of of disciple-making, of of speaking the truth in love to one another. It's it's as though the church is to be a a kind of echo chamber. Everywhere you turn, you just keep hearing the gospel and sound doctrine reflected back into your ears. That our fellow Christians in the church are, are sounding boards in that way, reflecting back to us the word of the Lord, the hope of the gospel, the good news of Christ. Notice he he says you must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. He says you must do this. There is no option. There is no other way. It's teaching that is sound, that is whole and good that grows disciples. Without teaching, the mission fails. And by sound doctrine, he means healthy doctrine. But notice now, That verse 1 doesn't stop there. Verse 1 says Titus must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. In other words, Titus teaches the truth, yes, but he also applies the truth. He is to tell the people how to work out the truth in their actual living. This is the role of the pastor. This is the role of the elder. This is how we shepherd by God's word, by teaching, by forming the people according to the word of the Lord, according to the gospel. And this teaching is meant to affect head, heart, and hands, the whole person. It, it is to communicate truth to the, to the head, to the mind. And that truth, where it's rightly understood, inflames passion in the heart. It, it ignites the soul. And, and that ignition is, a, is an explosion, not, a, not an implosion. We don't just cave in on, on thinking and sentiment, but it, it works itself out in the work of the hands. It, 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 it flows forth in, in service to others. This is what Paul means by what is in accord with sound doctrine, the, the thinking, the feeling, the actions that flow from the gospel. Titus is to teach his people this. Headless Christians wander aimlessly their infants tossed back and forth by every wind of doctrine and heartless Christians are cold and proud and unloving because knowledge puffs up and Christians with no hands handless Christians have no true faith James 2 17 and 18 tells us that faith by itself if it is not accompanied by action is dead We want to be the kind of men who have head, heart, and hands for the Lord. So how does that develop? Let me just give you three very brief applications. Number one, men. We must give attention to sound teaching. We must receive it, and we must get it and give it across the generations. Don't be lazy and disinterested. When it comes to sitting under God's word. When it comes to teaching others God's word. When it comes to reading and studying. I know far too many men. Who are happy to excuse themselves. By saying I don't like to read. Or I'm not a good reader. We, we, we live by God's word. God has chosen to set his teaching down in words, written. We are people, even in this land, of the book. We want to cultivate a joy in reading and learning, seeking God's face. Doesn't mean you need to read 200 books a year like John Fulmer. (laughs) Read three or four really good books a year. Read 15 minutes a day. I've been told if if a person reads 15 minutes a day, over their lifetime they will read a thousand books. You can be a reader. You can be a student. And it's essential to our being godly men, to our being mature, as God would have us be. So, brothers, we must give attention to sound teaching as it's preached and as we read it. Number two, we must cultivate godly friendships with Christian men who will sharpen us. Zion sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. We've got rel- we to relinquish our passive approach to friendships. we got to let that go. And if we would grow to be the men that we're called to be here and the kinds of men who are aspiring to be elders and the kinds of men who help younger men become men well, there's an active pursuing, seeking posture we ought to have toward friendships. And so we want to be those kinds of men under God and by His grace who seek out brothers whom we can encourage and who can encourage us. Who do you need to befriend? Who do you see in your congregations whom you know to be sort of alienated or marginalized? Or people in your congregation whom you know to be in need? Or people in your congregation whom you just want to get to know better, whom you are drawn to. Meet that brother. Encourage that brother. Serve that brother. Let that brother meet, encourage, and serve you. This means we need to cultivate friendships. Our final thing. Means we must celebrate, encourage, honor, and make room for true manhood. Mac is right in his opening that manhood's under attack. It's not valued. Uh, the men we see on television have gone from father knows best to, you know, the, the various clowns on the witches of Waverly place or something. So even in the popular media and culture, fatherhood is just another paycheck. Men are just another set of hands. Not so in God's economy. and So particularly in his household, among the family of faith, we want to cultivate the kinds of churches and, and the kinds of communities that celebrate manhood, that encourage it, that rejoice in it, that applaud it when they see it. And we want to do that as brothers. We don't want to be player haters. We don't want to be the kinds of guys who are jealous over someone else's apparent um, success. Rather, we want to lift them up. And we want more and more models like beacons set on hills to demonstrate and illustrate both inside and outside the church. this is what a man looks like. this is who lead this is, these are the ones who lead god's people, and it is good. That's pretty good Lord again, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for the opportunity to consider your word Lord, we pray that you would you would help us, that you would bless us, that you would guide us, that you would fill us by your Spirit, and that you would, uh, Lord, make us the men of God that you have called us to be. This is, this is our desire, and Lord, this is, we want to want this. Help us, O oh Lord. Help us not only to want this, but to give ourselves to this, that we might be among, among your creation. As men, O oh Lord, who who love and lead as you've called us to, we ask these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, we have uh, about 15 more minutes for Q and A,
1: so if you have any questions, just raise your hands and the ushers will bring you the mic. Um, I bring up this question because of uh, exposure to the Pentecostal church uh, movement and uh, what I see what you said in women's role in leadership, Mm -hmm. there is an emphasis on the part, but not in the whole, where Paul spoke about the disposition of women and, you know, even in some parts where they have to cover their heads. So like wearing braided hair, mm-hmm. jewelry. Mm-hmm. So why is uh, only one part emphasized and not the other?
0: In this discussion?
1: Yes. Uh, mainly because uh, No, even in the church in general, like
0: the way women have to dress and the way they, you know. Uh, that's a great question. Uh, in this discussion, because I'm talking to you as brothers about our part, our role, um, we, we, I, I think one thing would be helpful for both men and women is to learn to read their own mail. Right? So we, we read Ephesians 5, we read 1 Timothy, and all the guys go, See, woman, you're supposed to be quiet and listen to me. You know, and, and all the women look up and say, You're supposed to be leading and serving me, you know. Uh, so we read each other's mail rather than read our mail and take it to heart. Uh, so that's, that's, you know, here is the conversation about us reading our own mail, things we're called to do as men. Um, why in the wider church are some things emphasized, not emphasized? Um, There there are a range of of, of responses to that, Uh, unfaithfulness, unbelief, uh, rebellion, uh, ignorance, uh, you know, a benign ignorance, Um, preferences, um, not, not really, the reason I wanted to start with Christ as the head of the church and it rules by his word is because so many people will say Christ is the head of the church but the church is ruled by their own preferences not by the word. They're, they're, they're pragmatists. You know, They, they just want to do what they think um, gets results. You know, and, and we'll abandon the word in the course of doing that. Uh, but if we understand ourselves to be under his lordship and, and if we know him, we obey him, uh, then that means that we got to come to those unpleasant texts, those texts that cut across cultural uh, understandings or preferences and so forth and humble ourselves to them. Um, the other thing we should say about those texts, in terms of why some people don't 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 preach them or teach them, fear, cowardice, pain, right? Uh, so how many of us have heard, um, you know, First Timothy two um, verses nine and ten? Uh, I, I I desire that women dress modestly with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold or or pearls or expensive clothing, but with good deeds appropriate to women. With who worship, profess to worship God. Interesting. The beginning and the end of that passage, Paul actually is commending something. He's commending something positive and good, modesty. He's commending good deeds, being dressed in good deeds for women. that's appropriate for women who worship God. But in, in most of our circles, some Pentecostals, some conservatives, some others, you, you, you know what the bulk of the time is spent on? Can a woman wear jewelry? How long must her dress be? And I'm not saying those are unimportant questions. I'm just saying, I just don't think that's the main intent there. I think he's holding up something beautiful and positive that we want to aspire, you know, inspire people to, not just prohibit things. And so there's the, miss, the misteaching or the, the imbalance in another direction that calls some people to say, let me sort of pull back from this. So I think there are multiple reasons. You know, multiple reasons. It's a great question. Yeah.
1: Um, WT, I don't have a question for you. But I just want to praise the Lord for the inspiring words that you have given us here today. You know, sometimes we will have a speaker that comes through here as a tsunami and then we will grab either on a lamppost or on a piece of tree or something like that. But you I'm from the Western Cape and during the winter time we normally get ten to fifteen days continuous rain, that soft drizzling rain that soak the soil to the utmost. And this is by your softness that you carried the message over here today. I want to thank you because our souls are soaked with the word and the word of the Lord that you have given to us today. Thank
0: Amen. you. Amen. To God be the glory, brother. Thank you. Very yeah. Can you hear me? Yes, sir. Yeah. And, and you don't even teach Sunday school in a nursing home. Yeah.
1: <laughs> we couldn't figure it out. Uh, Tabiti, I have one question that uh, you were talking about men's role in the family in the church society. Now this is a bit different. Now it's men with men. Hmm. What are your thoughts on that? I know it's mentioned in the Bible. Many of the countries are legalizing men with men relationship, the marriages. I understand, I don't know how far it is true that even the churches are beginning to accept it. I would like to know what are your thoughts on this?
0: Right, thank you. It's a great question. Um, I don't want to give you any thoughts other than, than what God's Word says. I hope my thoughts are His, his thoughts in that regard. Um, yeah, it's, it's just really clear. Romans chapter 1, for example, um, that homosexuality and, and lesbianism would be contrary to the kind of the design for men and women that we see just taught throughout the Bible. Um, the Bible uses very strong language for that because it's an abomination uh, it 's it's a sin um, and and as Christians who're going to be faithful, uh, we have to be countercultural right we can 't just be sort of carried away with the culture or even the laws of the land so we 're we're, we're fast approaching in some lands the the situation where to in order to be a faithful Christian uh, in those cultures um, you know we, we may face legal sanction and other things for speaking the Bible's truth uh, on that particular issue, uh, so it's really clear that God has has made man and woman in such a way that they uniquely reflect um, His glory as men and women, and they are meant to be complement, they're meant to go together that there's a natural use of the body and a natural affection uh, that men and women are meant to share uh, and contrary to that is sin um, and, and I got to say that uh, in some ways. I hear this critique. I don't. I don't. In a previous life in the think tank, I was sometimes in policy discussions where we were debating these kinds of issues. And sometimes you would hear the critique that it's it's heterosexuals who've messed up marriage via divorce and unfaithfulness and things of that sort. Uh, and and so why deny homosexuals that opportunity? And there's a, there's a sense in which that critique is is just not legitimate. I mean, it's you know um, scapegoating. But but there's a sense in which I think. The Lord's people need to be humbled in the church Um, and we need a a refreshed, a renewed concern for marital faithfulness to express it positively and we need a fresh and renewed abhorrence to sexual immorality of the the heterosexual type as well. Um, So I'm really interested to march against gay marriage when we also march against adultery and we march against all kinds of heterosexual uh, sins as well. Great question.
1: Um, There are certain circumstances in one's life where uh, you don't have a perfect family situation. Um, There's a lot of men in the in the congregation that are working here because of financially they're supporting their families back home, Mm. and uh, some stay a long time before they actually go back and see their families. How do you propose that these men can actually uh, be good role models for their families and children? They're here supporting their family because of circumstances in their life where they can't. Uh,
0: I'd like to get your view on this. Thank you. That's a great question. It's it's practically something that we face pastorally in in the Cayman Islands. We have lots of expatriates there, uh, some coming from as near as Jamaica, who they are working to to support family back home, some coming half a planet away from the Philippines, for example, who are doing the same thing. Um, And I think one of the things that we want to do in church settings like our own is try and cultivate a a kind of quick and generous and warm reception of those folks to to fold them into our own family lives, to fold them into meaningful relationships in the church, uh, because they're going to need encouragement. They're going to need accountability as well. Uh, they're going to need people to help them uh, guard their hearts against temptation and, and the enemy's snares. Um, sometimes that's going to take the practical expression of, uh, let's say that person's in a small group. The small group member's just sort of pulling together and buying a plane ticket you know, for them to be able to go home at holiday. Uh, just a, a tangible, practical way to love. Um, you know, Practical things in terms of making sure that person has Skype you know, perhaps, and the family back home has Skype. So, so maybe you're buying a computer or giving them access to your computer so that there can be communication. I'm sorry? How can that
1: person be a good role model for their family when they're not there? How can you be a good role person and follow what the, the Lord is telling us, which is right? How
0: can that person be a good role model when circumstances prevail in the situation? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's difficult. I, I don't think it's insurmountable, right? So I think the person, let me go back and say what I think should be normally the case. It should be normally the case that husband and wife and family are together. I think it should be normally the case that they're together uh, making ends meet, uh, even if that means difficulty. But as you pointed out, in some cases that it's, that, that's, that's hard to do, that's difficult to do. I think the person making that sacrifice, and who is also still remaining faithfully connected with the family, is being a good role model. A, a husband is called to provide, you know, and, and, and that call may mean uh, what most of us would feel is an inordinate cost, an inordinate burden. Uh, I think such a person is a model in so, so far as they're also being as faithfully connected and supported and involved given the distance that they can be. So I, I guess I w- to say that a different way, I'd want to caution us against a knee-jerk reaction that see someone here or in the Cayman Islands away from their family, working to provide for their family, I don't want to caution us against a knee-jerk reaction that might suggest, okay, bad dad, bad husband, so on and so forth. Uh, that's not necessarily the case, even though it's a very difficult situation.
1: Okay. We'll take one last question. Here. Right. Hi, Tabithi. I'm actually one of the uh, Iranian church leaders, and I have a question about leadership. So in some specific area and locations, uh, when we don't have enough uh, men leaders uh, to lead the church or gathering, and uh, we have good uh, women leaders, so how we can help this situation, how we can help them to grow if uh, we don't have enough good uh, uh, men leaders to help them? As a church, and we know some. We know uh, Paul uh, said some greeting to uh, women. They had a church at their home in that time. So, what is uh, what is a way actually a good way to? Help
0: yeah. That? Great question. Um, obviously, the letter to Titus is written to Titus in a, in a fairly similar situation. He's sort of establishing the church there. He's left there in Crete to appoint elders in every church. So he's in a situation where there aren't plentiful male elders in leadership, but they do have one elder, and that's Titus. So I would argue that if you have at least one gifted man, you have enough elders. right? So, so we're not to depart from male leadership because, because we don't have plentiful male leaders. We're to retain that. The, the letters where Paul mentions the church meeting in Chloe's household, etc., I don't take him to be referring to um, Chloe and other ladies who were, who were sponsoring, in that sense, hosting the church. I don't take him to mean that, that they were exercising leadership over the church because of what he clearly says in 1 Timothy two, eleven and 12. And that forces us to a difficult conclusion. Uh, it, we, we, we may have to recognize that some groups that have been formed where women were the first converts, like Lydia for example that we don't yet have a church we've got a group of Christians and we want them to meet together and so on and so forth but we don't need to be hasty in applying the label church uh, and, it, and, it, and it may force us also to have to recognize um, some less than ideal situations where you have less than the number of men you would like pastoring more people than, than perhaps uh, would be ideal, and that was precisely the case in the early church. I mean, go back to the early chapters of Acts when the gospel is preached; thousands are coming to Christ. You got twelve apostles. You know, they create the diaconate, you know, to help shepherd and care for folks. So I think the scriptures give us gives us answers to that very practical problem. You're raising a question about a good problem, and what I would say is let's not be hasty to call every grouping a church, because part of what you need to be a church is qualified godly leaders. Um, and and let's not overlook the fact that for some period of time in God's providence and wisdom uh, we may have fewer leaders even one leader like Titus in in Crete uh, who is the elder, the bishop in that church until other men are trained and raised up Um, now having said all of that the other thing I do want to add is those women in those situations while they shouldn't be elders and and usurping authority over men while they shouldn't be the, the teaching pastors of a local church that does not mean they don't have a role to play in encouraging men and helping men become what God wants them to become in the way of leadership. Uh, and I think that's important to, to acknowledge. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, David. Thank you, brother.